0: Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Ephesians chapter 4, as we continue through our series in the book of Ephesians, uh, looking at a series called In Christ, and so this morning we get to Walking Worthy in Christ, and so uh, where we've been over the last several weeks, this is week 10, I believe, we've been looking at... Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus where he is laying out in the first three chapters a very doctrinal statement. He's going over and over and over the blessings that we have received in Christ, who we are in Christ, and how we've been saved in Christ. And these were really the building blocks for this letter now that he gets to chapter 4. And there's a, a move or a shift from doctrine to Christian duty and how we are to live out who we are in Christ. And so walking worthy is where we are this morning as we look at these building blocks of a life built on Christ. Now, when I was a child, I had Lincoln Logs. Anybody else have Lincoln Logs? And, and you could build that. My my uh, my later years of, of uh, being a child, I moved to Legos. Legos were a big thing. My son loved Legos. And his entire closet floor was just shards of glass Legos as you walked in as a parent and would step on them you know you know what I'm talking about but my son I could buy him any Lego set it could be a small set or a big set and he would he would put it all out on the kitchen table and he would take that that uh directional guide you know and he would sit and just put them piece after piece after piece and he would build Star Wars ships and all kinds of things by following the directions and uh, one one Christmas I believe or one holiday we had family over and and two of the younger boys made their way upstairs to play with Eli's Legos. And, and you know, all the, all the Lego pieces on the ground were not good enough. And so they decided, well, let's take all the pieces that are in these ships that have been put together and tear them apart. And, and if, you, if you've ever seen a child broken, this was my son's face as he came down holding pieces of uh, his Legos. And uh, he's, probably, he's 20, and he's probably still bitter about it, so I just wanted to bring it up. But the building blocks is where we are in Ephesians. So what are these building blocks? What is our faith built on? It's built on what we have in Christ, who we are in Christ. So doctrine is super important at the very beginning of this letter. So we read things like, if you have your, you have your uh, finger there, you can flip over a page. In Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 10, you see the blessings we have received in Christ. Blessed be the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. This was God's plan from the very beginning to unite all things. To bring all things together in Christ. So he's united us as we get to chapter 2. You see in verses 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace their hostility. So he's now the building blocks of who we are, the blessings we received. He's building all things, putting all things together in Christ. Now he's created us as one body. He's bringing both Jew and Gentile into into the church, creating one man. And what does he do with that? Verses 21 and 22 of chapter 2. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The building blocks. He is building his church. God is creating his church. And so what does his church do? His church moves from doctrine to duty. This is how we live, how we walk in Christ. And so he begins here, Ephesians chapter 4. As the week began, I was, I was going to teach verses 1 through, uh, I think, 14 or 16. And, and then about halfway through the week, I decided, all right, we're going to stop at verse 7. And so we're going to look at verse 1 and 2 today. 1 and 2. That's as far as we're going to get. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we get into your word today, we thank you for it. We thank you for the sufficiency of scripture that you have allowed us to have in our hands today so we could hear your voice. Father, I pray that as we look at what it, what it means to be in Christ, because of all the things you've done in your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would live lives of worship before you, that our lives would be laid out before you in all humility, in all patience, and all gentleness, bearing with one another, that you would unite your church together, that we would see that you've called us, and you've called us with purpose. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this body of believers. We thank you that we are gathered today to read your word aloud. Strengthen us with your Holy Spirit in Christ's name. Amen. We walk worthy of our calling through internal attitudes. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Paul again addresses himself as a prisoner for the Lord. We know that Paul was arrested at least three times. In his ministry, first time happened in 49 AD as he was in Philippi and he cast out the demon from this demon-possessed girl that was, that was t- fortune-telling. And so it caused a big uproar and he was thrown into prison and then was miraculously released. The second time that he's thrown in prison is found in Acts 21, which is what happens just before this. And now that he's in house arrest in 58 to 63 AD, he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. This is what happens in Acts chapter 21. And starting verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the, crowd, the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen trophy And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So here we have Paul writing this letter to the Ephesians, and this is the arrest that has led to the point where he has the opportunity. What did he do that was so grievous to get him thrown in prison? There's an Ephesian there. Word has it that he had brought him into a place where he he wasn't supposed to be in the temple. And so this accusation is what has brought upon this arrest. And so we see that he writes these letters and eventually Paul is arrested one final time where he, he awaits his death and he writes his last letter, 2 Timothy, to his blood, Timothy. And so we have these arrests that take place. And Paul here is writing and he's writing as a prisoner of the Lord and he's writing on behalf of the desire for unity in the body. How important was the unity, of body for, the unity of the body of Christ for Paul? It was so important that he was willing to go to prison over it. Throughout church history, though, the churches remain unified over certain things and divided over other things. And so as we, even now in, in our culture, see that there is divisions among churches, um, we see that there are, there are reasons for division. When a church walks away from the gospel... When a church walks away from the doctrines of faith. When a church walks away and begins to tolerate sins that the Bible clearly condemns. When there are denominations that are debating and allowing homosexual marriage and even clergy to be uh, practicing homosexuality, there's reasons for there to be divisions in in the body. You divide over sin. This is the only reason to divide. The reason you divide over sin is because it brings purity to the body and it helps bring that person hopefully back into the body, a restoration of repentance for that person. We protect the church by, by rightly dividing the word of God. However, the church has been divided over all kinds of issues. They, they divide over preferences. Churches have divided over music. They've divided over uh, organs. They've divided over carpet colors. They've divided over you name it, right? Churches get upset all the time and they divide. They're disunified over, over matters that aren't even related to the gospel. Paul here, a prisoner, writing to a church about walking worthy of a calling and walking worthy of a calling in unity. So we walk worthy when we walk in unity. Walking worthy of the calling involves walking in unity with one another. So how important is church unity to you as a follower of Christ? We should be willing to to go to prison over it. We should be willing to lay our lives down for it. That's how important unity is. So, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. I urge you to walk, is what Paul says. I implore you. In the present tense, he's saying, I beseech you continually. This is an ongoing call to the life of a believer. I urge you to continually take some action to walk, to live a life that is in progressive sanctification. I encourage you, I beseech you continually to keep taking steps of sanctification as a body of believers, to keep growing in your holiness. These are the steps that you take out of knowing who you are in Christ, that you would continue to grow in grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is where Paul urges his church. Church, continue to walk in this manner, in a manner worthy of the calling. So, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. Well, the word worthy here has the idea of weighted balance on a scale. So when you you think of this, I I encourage you, I urge you, I beseech you to walk in a manner worthy. It's putting your life on a scale. If if this is who you are in the first three chapters in Christ, then what does your life look like? Does your life match who you are in Christ? So I I implore you to keep taking steps in this direction. Or is it way out of balance? Job 31.6, let me be weighted in a just balance and let God know my integrity. God knows who you really are on the inside. And and, and he knows our thoughts. He knows our intentions. He He knows us even when our outside Lifestyles may be saying something totally different to the people around us. What's our integrity? 1 Samuel 2, 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Weighed in the balance. This reminds me of... Daniel chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there real quick. Daniel chapter 5 is a a famous narrative of King Belshazzar and how there's a writing on the wall. Does that strike any remembrance there? So there's a writing on the wall, and the word weighed is in there. Weighed in the balance. Begins in there, verse 1, chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. So... I'll stop right there. As we're picking up in the story, there's a great feast going on. There's a great party going on. And there are 1,000 a a thousand people here in this room, as archaeologists have said, with some 60 feet wide by 172 feet long. And it is packed with the who's who's and all the people you want to know, like what's, on, you know, what's going on in their life. These are the people. They're all there, and they're throwing this great big party. So, verse 2, Belshazzar When he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. We see that the king, Belshazzar, here is now going to take the things of God and use them in an improper manner for the worship of little g, gods, actually in the worship of possessions of gold and silver and bronze. He's going to take the things of God, and he's going to have a blasphemous idolatry and worship that takes place. He's reached a point in his life where his heart, Is so far removed and so far removed from God that even though he's surrounded by the people of God and the possessions of God he has no heart towards God and so he's blatantly gonna worship idols in front of him immediately verse 5 the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand and the king saw the hand as it wrote verse 25 skipping down and this is the writing that was inscribed mene mene tekel and parson this is the interpretation of the matter mene god has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end take you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting perez your kingdom is divided and given to the medes and the persians well this is what takes place in chapter 5 the king belshazzar is going to be his days are numbered your kingdom days are numbered god knows our days he knows the amount of time that we will take breath on this earth. Every day is numbered. Every hair on our head is numbered. He knows every detail about our life from beginning to end. Wade, Divided. The writing on the wall was a warning of the wrath to come. It was a warning of God's wrath. God's word is, is written So that we could read it. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's Hebrews 4.12. The word in Aramaic, mene, mene, tekel, parson. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Just as Belshazzar's days were numbered, everyone's days are numbered. Belshazzar was weighed. He was found wanting in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't measure up. Let me me just pause right there. As we think about our lives, weighed in the balance, are you walking worthy of your calling? You will never measure up. So let me take the weight off of you of performance Christianity. You will never be good enough. And if you are not in Christ you will be found wanting on the final day. But in Christ, his righteousness in our place levels it. Christ and Christ in you. You are now level. Amen? That is great news because I do not want to fail. Do you want to fail? No, this is good news. This is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are now, you're now, the scales have been, been evened. When you are weighed against the righteousness of Jesus, you do not measure up. Only the blood of Jesus and his righteousness imputed to you makes you even found worthy or weighed and not wanting. Therefore, we who are in Christ should live lives as we truly are in Christ. To walk worthy means I'm going to begin living as if I really am in Christ. That his attributes, his life will begin to live through me. That I won't continue in sin like I did before. As Wayne Grudem says, but if a person makes a practice of sinning, that is, if someone continues in a pattern of disobedience without repentance, he may not have ever truly put his trust in Jesus for salvation. That is, the sinful pattern of his life could show that he never really was a Christian. In contrast, when Christians sin, they should earnestly and quickly confess their sins to God when we we do so we will find God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1.9. So, weighed, divided. There will be a time where there will be a division that has taken place. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 32 through 46, speak of this. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Into eternal life. Many, many take el parson. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. One day, we will stand before the Lord. And either we will stand in his righteousness, or we will stand apart from his righteousness. And we may have questions, what will win? When did I not do this? So the challenge here is that if you are here today, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Is, is all the blessings from chapters 1 through 3 true of you? And if yes, then live a life worthy of the calling in which you've been called. Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. What is this calling? This is an effectual calling, a, a holy calling that should result in a holy walk. As Romans 8.30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the salvation, this calling, Second Timothy 1.9, who, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is a holy calling. So if you've been called, you've been called to walk worthy, to, to a holy calling. And so to which you have been called. So you... Here, you've been called, personal. There's a personal holy calling of salvation. Then you is a plural form, which you have been called. You is in the plural form, which denotes it is in the corporate sense of the word. Meaning that you individually have been called and saved into a corporate calling. Now Think about that for just a minute. That if there's been a holy effectual calling that has brought you out of of death, Into life. If it's brought you out of darkness into light, then now you are to walk worthy of a calling in a corporate setting. That you are now brought together, being built up in Christ, together as His body. Therefore, we are to live out our individual calling in the context of a community of called believers, called people. So we live out the unity of the body as the church. Mark Labberton says, God's primary call is for us to belong to and live for the flourishing of God's purposes in the world. This is the calling of each individual, but also the calling of each church that's gathered together that we would live for the flourishing of God's purposes in this world. Matt Rogers says that the church is not some arbitrary option for those who are saved by Christ, but rather the outcome of the gospel itself. You must renounce individualism and pursue unity, love, and burden-bearing relationships with others. Listen, if you are in Christ, you have a calling on your life. You've been called, and now you've been called to a calling. You have purpose in the body of Christ. So I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called. And here he gets into it, with all humility. This is so remarkable that that Paul, he doesn't give you a list of things to do, a list of actions. He gives you a list of of attitudes that are Christ characteristics they're Christ in you these are this is Christ living out of you so what does it begin with it begins with all humility all humility lowliness of mind is what this means it involves seeing yourself as you truly are without arrogance or self-promotion seeing yourself for what you really are you know if, if we just sometimes if we just take a look in the mirror. We know who we really are, am I right? And then when you engage in a community of believers without putting on a face, you engage with all humility. You, put, you, you enter in and you say, listen, this is who I really am. I really am fallen. I really am struggling. So humility is essential for unity because pride tears down unity. Dwight Edwards says this, True humility is not putting ourselves down, but rather lifting up others. If we concentrate on lifting up others, putting down ourselves will take care of itself. As we go through life exalting Christ and others, then genuine humility will be inevitable. If we exalt ourselves, then God will take care of our humiliation, for He promises to humble the proud. It's much less painful to do it the first way. Humility. It is... The character of Christ lived out in the body of believers. Philippians 2, 1 through 5. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine entering into a body of believers with all humility? That as soon as you enter into the body of believers, as soon as you walk into the church, that you count others as more significant than yourselves immediately. And you're continually looking to build them up and, and help them in their, in their walk with Christ. Then, then a whole source of unity changes. I'm not fighting for my way. So humility then is... Connected with gentleness, These two go hand in hand: humility and gentleness. Gentleness, then, is the quality of being strong and controlled. This is the idea of a tamed animal. Now I don't know about you, but I've got a tame, somewhat tame, let's say, somewhat tame, animal that lives in my house. This is my little eight-pound Lucy and she looks adorable but if you try to pick her up she will go Rrr, and try to bite you okay so she's somewhat tame but the fact that i have an animal that lives in my house it you know is kind of odd if you really think about it and some of you you have big animals in your house and you let them sleep in your bed and that's just weird that's gross but you have a wild animal with canine teeth that lives in your house and it's just totally normal for you because it's tame. This is power under control. This is gentleness. The, the other translation would be meekness. But it, it is power under control that though I could go crazy at any moment, everything is under control. And as you enter into a body of believers, listen, I'm going I'm to be tame. I could blow off on you but I'm going to be tame. Isn't that, isn't that remarkable? That these are the attitudes and the actions of a, of a body of believers that are unified in Christ. It's gentleness that allows us as a believer to properly minister to someone who has sinned or correct someone who is in sin. It's that when we are so offended by the sin in someone's life, we don't just go off on them, but we have gentleness and we come alongside them with power to help build them up. As Galatians 6 one through two, Paul says, "Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Gentleness. This is another characteristic of Jesus. This is how he describes himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine: Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." Aren't you glad that Jesus is gentle with us, that he helps us, that he comes alongside us, that he is powerful and he can help carry us through sin and burdens that are in our life? With patience. Everyone loves to pray for patience. Oh, that that should have got more chuckles than that, but it didn't. You're like, oh, no, I don't like to pray for patience. Literally, it means long-tempered as opposed to short-tempered. You ever been accused of having a short temper? Maybe a short temper with people? You see, a characteristic of Jesus Christ living in and through you is long-tempered. J. Vernon McGee, we shouldn't have a short fuse with our friends and Christian brethren. We shouldn't make snap judgments. We think about the unity and walking worthy of the calling. We do it in a a called body of believers. We should not make snap judgments about one another. William Barclay says it this way, It is the ability not to lose patience when people are foolish, not to grow irritable when they seem unteachable. It is the ability to accept the folly, the perversity, the blindness, the ingratitude of men, and still to remain gracious. If you think about this in the context of a local body, patient with one another. Because I'll be honest with you, there are times when I'm unteachable. Anybody with me? There are times when I'm just foolish. When I'm blinded by my own ambition and my own ways and I I just blow through things. And I'm so thankful that I'm surrounded by a family that is gracious to me even though. That's unity in the body. That is Christ lived out in the life of believers. This is God's attitude towards us. Romans 2.4 Do not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God is patient with us. Romans 9, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He is patient. First Timothy 1:16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who, are, who were to believe in him for eternal life. What a prayer. Jesus, that you might display your perfect patience in me for the unity of your church. Man, that's a prayer, isn't it? Maybe we should pray that today. After all, patience is the first defining attribute of genuine love. Love is patient. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another. Bearing or showing tolerance is another interpretation. We are to be those who put up with differences of other believers, and we are to do it with unconditional love. Now, tolerance in today's world has gotten a wrong definition. Today, tolerance means... Throwing out all absolute moral standards and not judging anyone for their sin. And that is not what tolerance is. That's not what is meant here. What is meant here is that you tolerate, you bear with, in love, the fact that people are different than you. That they may have quirks, they may have shortcomings, they may have personalities. They they may say things different than you. They may dress different than you. They may act different than you. They may like things different than you. But yet, you're bearing with them in love, unconditional love. This is what this means. And this is only possible if the church is rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And we are then beginning to bear fruit of his attributes. So if this is you in Christ, chapters 1 through 3. I urge you, brothers, walk worthy. Walk in a manner that shows who you really are in the scales, that your life would match that. So how did the Ephesian church do? Well, let me read from Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 5. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Just to explain that to you, John the Revelator is writing letters to churches, seven churches. This one to the church in Ephesus. And here in this first verse reveals to us that Jesus is walking amongst his churches. Jesus is walking in the midst of his churches. Verse 2 He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus knows how determined they are in keeping the truth, that they are a church who is not going to tolerate evil, and holiness and purity matter to them. The scriptures matter to them. They have a standard of moral behavior that matters to them. They're standing out in their culture, by all outward appearances, they look healthy. But, verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. They were in danger of becoming a church that was pharisaical. They were in danger of being a church that was so obedient and so full of duty on the outside that they had forgotten to, that it, it was their love of God that matters the most. And they needed to repent of that. So I, he says, if not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You, you'll lose your witness. This is, this is, this is really difficult because... We can be about all the right things, but if we've lost our genuine love of Jesus Christ, what kind of witness is there? Our witness is not just showing people that we're, we're against sin. Our, our witness is not just showing people that, that we have moral standards. No, our witness is that we are a people who love Jesus. And our love of Jesus produces in us a love for one another that is unmatched by any anything else in this world. This is the church. So let's pray that we would walk worthy of the calling of which he's called us.